Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week it's all about perceiving sound from different locations and how your brain processes it. Now, what you might think of as pitch, that might be something that you could consider universal, but we look at some research which delves into the biological as well as cultural limitations of understanding pitches. But we also look at how your brain figures out where sound is coming from and uses special techniques to localise sound. If you're listening to this podcast with headphones in, or maybe wireless earbuds, you probably won't be able to distinguish where exactly that sound's coming from. But maybe if you're listening on a speaker uh, and you're standing at a different side of the room, then the noise will emanate and hit your ears. And depending on which ear it hits first, your brain will compute and calculate where exactly that sound came from. Now, with determining the sound of a podcaster's voice, that's not really important. But for a lot of other creatures, including us humans, being able to tell where something is, is very, very useful. From being able to find your lost phone, all the way to be able to detect where your prey is or keep away from predators, maybe moving traffic or someone calling your name. Being able to localise sound is incredibly important for pretty much all creatures' survival. Now, one of the big challenges about localising sound is we don't really understand the mechanism that is used to do this. Now, biomedical engineers have been working on this and trying to crack it for some time, but what they don't understand or have consensus on, to be more clear, is what your brain does, or any creature's brain, to process this noise. Now, as we talked about, the sound hits your ears at different times, mostly because sound as a wave is travelling across space and hits one ear before the other. And the difference in the time of arrival is called the interaural time difference, or ITD. Then your brain computes using that difference in time to try and localise where the sound is. Now one of the major models is called the Jeffers model and this sort of proposes that there is some kind of spatial map inside your brain which humans use to localise sound. It's kind of like a compass. So basically when a sound comes in, goes through your brain, gets processed, it hits it all these different neurons at certain angles, and the one that says, ah, I'm the 30 degrees one, this means that sounds at 30 degrees. They all just use this mechanism, this spatial map, to be able to identify where the sound is coming from. Now the problem is, that spatial map model is a bit challenging, because it means that if you have hearing loss, or have hearing damage, or as you've gotten older, it's not very easy to then reteach you the ability to learn or improve your hearing. It's effectively fixed as part of this spatial map in your brain. Now, that's what researchers from New Jersey Institute of Technology, Neural Engineering for Speech and Hearing Laboratory, led by the director of the laboratory, Anja Infield. Now, she was trying to figure out a way to help improve hearing aids that at the moment actually have really terrible sound direction corrective actions. And that's because we don't really understand how figuring out a direction of a sound works. So trying to build a hearing aid that helps boost and improves the brain's performance towards, they all do a bad job. Mostly because, as we said, we don't really understand it. So that's what she was trying to investigate. Ideally, try to make a better hearing aid. Now, the Jeffress model is a model, the basically the spatial map theory. But there's another theory out there as well. And this is related to another trick your brain does. Now, when we see distances, we actually try to assess and estimate a distance based on the input from 
both of your eyes. That's why if you close one eye, your depth perception, your ability to perceive distance, really goes off. Because your brain's algorithm for figuring out how far away an object is depends on the signal for both eyes. Now, this research was shaped around great work by Robert Shapley, who's a neurophysiologist from NYU. And Shapley's research really showed that if there's a low contrast image, so for example, if it's a bit dark and you can't tell the objects away from each other, then you have real difficulty telling how far the distance is. However, if you have high contrast, it's really easy for you to detect that distance. And this is to do with the neural principle of how your brain dynamically responds to and processes that visual information about from your eyes. It's not a static map that your brain has when processing the eye image. It actually does a cool bit of neural calculation, which factors in the contrast of the stimulus it's receiving. And they, the researchers, Elfield and Shapley, were having a chat, and they realized that, well, is it possible that our ears work in the same way? After all, if our brain is judging distance and location using this method in one place, could it do the same with oral stimuli? And that would make sense. And the simple way to test that is if your ears are better at detecting softer sounds than louder ones. If the brain can't detect softer sounds easily, that means there's low contrast, to compare it to the eye example, that means it's using some kind of dynamic processing model. The Jeffers model, the spatial map theory, says it doesn't matter if the sound is loud or soft. They would all be processed equally. But is there, if there's a difference between them, that means that your brain is doing something dynamically to try and figure it out. Now, a lot of physiologists propose that mammals rely on the dynamic neural model. And the problem is, there aren't a lot of studies out there. There is one study involving birds, which rely on a spatial map model, and there's another involving macaques monkeys that have a more dynamic response. And that was pretty much the only input data that these researchers could use to build a model for humans. But that's what they took as their basis starting point. They built a computational model and they used that to sort of act as a, a control to measure against for their research. Then they built an extremely quiet sound shielded room with a whole bunch of specially calibrated equipment that allowed them to present sounds with really, really high precision to a volunteer standing in the room. And they could then measure them against where they perceived the sound originated from. And what they noted, which was pretty amazing, is that people misidentified the softer sounds. When the sounds were loud, it was easy for them to determine where the sound came from. But when the sound was softer and softer, gradually going down, they got more and more uncertain about where that noise was coming from. And in fact, while they may have said that the sound was coming from one place, they were in fact wildly wrong. Whereas at a high volume, they were easily able to identify that sound. And that means that the spatial map hypothesis, the Jeffers-like computation, comparing all the sounds around you to some fixed idea of where sound comes from, just can't be true. Because otherwise, there wouldn't be any of this variability depending on the volume of sound. Which means you're brain is dynamically trying to process this signal and that's pretty exciting and that means we actually are using some kind of neural like method now how exactly it works we're not entirely sure yet but this is a good start to better understand how our ears work and combined with our brain now because these researchers have now discovered a unifying principle principle across two different senses we could actually make some other inferrals from this that perhaps vision and hearing are more connected than we think. The brain is processing them both in similar ways. 
That also means when developing new hearing devices, we can now try to retrain and use this to our advantage to help people hear better. And this is good news for people who have suffered hearing loss or the elderly who need hearing aids. This is some great research being done out of New Jersey Institute of Technology, led by Archie Itfield and her team of researchers, published in the journal eLife, helping to shed light, or sound on this case, on how our ears and our brain processes where noise are coming from. From localizing sound and to localizing our understanding of sounds across different regions of the world. Now, one group of researchers working together with people from MIT, the Max Planck Institute in Germany, as well as researchers from the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile, have been trying to study, with the help of people from a remote Bolivian tribe known as the Simane, the differences between perception and understanding of notes and music. Now, the lead author on this study was Nora Jacobi, who's been working with Josh McDermott from MIT. Now, McDermott has been working for many years now, publishing several papers on the understandings and the universality, I guess, of music. And using the Simane's isolation, or relative sense, from the rest of the world, and in particular from Western culture, means they're a great way to test whether or not our perception of sound is linked to our cultural upbringing and exposure to music of a certain type, or if it's got some biological constraints built into it. And that's really what McDermott's major LitRab research team have been trying to investigate with help of their collaborators across the world. Now, by using the Simane as a relatively isolated tribe, they've been studying all the way back in 2016 whether or not the Western perception of chords' aesthetic pleasingness uh, is something that we've learned or something that's hardwired into humans. And thanks to their research, they've found that, for example, when a Western uh, hears the combination of the note C and the note F sharp, they find that a bit strange and grating. But for Somali listeners, they say it's just as likable as any other chord that the Westerners would interpret as more present, such as a normal common example of C and G. C and G typically used together with E to form the C major chord. The, that fifth combination for music nerds, or that's, that uh, combination of notes or in sequence, are actually perceived as a pleasing sound for Western ears. But that's actually more because of our cultural training, is what McDermott's study showed. Now, in a latest study, Jacobi and McDermott worked again together to see if they could identify if rhythm, that is, the sequence of noises, was something that was culturally trained or something that humans are sort of hardwired to identify. Now, what they found is pretty interesting. They found that both Westerners and this remote tribe are both drawn to musical rhythms composed of simple integer ratios. 
Look, the ratios they favoured were different, but the fact that they liked these simple ratios meant they have something in common. Our brain sort of perceives the way sound coming in, and it likes it to be divided into these discrete, simple chunks. Again, this is things like minims, quavers, crotchets, and so on. Uh, certain patterns. It's easier for our brain to process those patterns if they're in simple ratios. Now, now they turn their attention after looking at chords and rhythm to another key element, and that's pitch. Now, people have been theorizing for a while now uh, whether or not there are some kind of biological constraints to our perception of pitch. And pitch perception is really interesting because whilst the human ear can hear up to around 20,000 hertz or 20 kilohertz, we can't really distinguish pitches um, over about 4,000 hertz. And by that I mean, if you have the same note or a slightly different note, we can't tell it apart once we get above a certain frequency. Now, the highest note on a standard 88 key piano is around a C at about 4,100 hertz. And that is very difficult then to tell that C, if it was there, from the next note above it. That's because we actually don't understand why our brain is processing that sound or unable to process that sound effectively. And that's one of the things these researchers were trying to dig into. It's also interesting to see whether or not their understanding of pitch and how pitches work actually is a universal trait. Now, what they did to test this is devise a very simple tune. It consists of two or three notes. They played it, and then they asked the listener to sing it back. Now, this was done to people from Boston and New York, as well as people from this remote minor tribe. And the listeners sang their responses normally within their standard vocal range. Most people typically have a one, maybe two octave of vocal range. Now, what was interesting is that the Western listeners, who are typically often trained musicians, were able to re reproduce the tune in an exact number of octaves above or below what they heard. So if they had a piano or a sound recording playing it at one octave, they were able to reproduce it higher or lower depending on where their own vocal range sat. Now, for example, if they played the pattern ACA, and A can be a number of different frequencies. It could be 27.5, 55, 110, or 220 hertz. And all of those, and multiples of those, of course, are the note A, just at different octaves. And listeners would see the ACA pattern, or hear the ACA pattern, and repeat it back in their own vocal range. However, the Simone tribe people did not. They were able to perceive the relative pitch between the notes, the differences, i.e. A, C, are different notes, and they're able to keep that same interval, is what the phrase is called, but they did not match the octave, or they didn't try and reproduce the tone, the relative pitch as well, which means this, this idea of consistent absolute pitch is something sort of locked in to Western music, which is structurally quite important to the octave as part of Western musical tradition, but it's not something universal means that these remote tribe didn't have any clear need to use it or able to reproduce it. And that is pretty interesting. I mean, it's not a biological condition. It's actually just a learned skill, which also is why people can improve their ability to pick up pitch by following along or singing along with some instruments. Now, why they were digging into this is to try to figure out if there's some kind of limit to our ability to perceive pitch, as we mentioned before. And what they found is that the 
Now, one theory as to why humans have a limited range of determining pitches is that we're just not exposed to any pitches that are above 4,100 hertz. I mean, after all, that high C on a piano is 4,100-ish. Well, and how often do you hear that played? And this lack of exposure hypothesis is what people thought is why we have the difficulty discerning between different pitches. And so the Somali tribe is a good example because they actually have some musical instruments, but their musical instruments have much lower sound pitches that they can achieve, much lower than 4,000 hertz, that is. However, the Simanes could actually identify and distinguish between pitches all the way up to around 4,000 hertz, just the same as Western listeners, which means that in this case, we actually do have a clear biological limit and constraints on our ability to determine pitch. Now, why that may be is still unclear, but one explanation might be to do with the way your brain is processing these frequencies coming in. Over about 4,000 hertz, the firing rates of the neurons in our ear just can't keep up. They sort of start to miss information because the sound is literally too fast. So it means that at that higher and higher frequencies, our brain isn't able to pick up and discern between the sounds as easily, literally because it's basically too fast for our neurons to keep up with. And that could be a possible biological reason why the distinguishing between pitch has a theoretical upper limit. But this goes to show that using this tribe and collaboration with these people from the Simone tribe, as well as researchers from South America and the Max Planck Institute, that culturally, a lot of our things that we perceive as just parts of hearing sound, what is a pleasing tone and what isn't, have a lot to do with purely our exposure over years and years, ambiently, even not even learned exposure, but ambient exposure to what is a nice sound and not, happens through our culture. And when you examine Yes, there are fundamental limits to parts of our brain's processing of sound, but most of the time, most of our differences in the way we perceive sound have a lot to do with our cultural training of our brain, which means our brain is doing some pretty fancy things in there to process all that sound. And we've actually trained it, whether you know it or not, to be able to perceive the chords, to also be able to perceive nice tones or unclear tones, and to be able to distinguish between pitches and reproduce it without having to do a huge transposition exercise, even though that's exactly what's happening inside your brain when you sing along to the music. You may not know, but you're actually doing some pretty high-level transposition, which is a learned skill that you've actually picked up. This is some great research published in the journal Current Biology, led by Nora Jacobi and Josh McDermott, and involving a large team of researchers, including researchers from the Max Planck Institute, along with MIT and the University of and the Pontifical Catholic University in Chile. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we talked about how your brain localizes sound using neural techniques, plus the cultural and biological differences between the perception of pitch. All this week and more, your brain processing sound. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.